Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, which is rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we will be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I am Communications Director at We Are Guernsey. We're the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. And today I am delighted to be speaking to Tim Haynes. He's a writer, a consultant, senior advisor and former Director General of the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, BVCA. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. So um, here at Guernsey Finance, we've spoken with you many times now, but for listeners who may not know about you, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of your backstory and where your interests in sustainable finance lie? Certainly. Um, I'm afraid I can't say that I'm one of these people with a sort of 30-year history of concern and campaigning in this space. I'm, a, I suppose, a relatively recent convert. Um, my first career was I was an academic at Oxford University. I used to teach politics, American and British in particular. Um, I then moved to The Times, uh, where I was the chief, chief leader writer, columnist and assistant editor. But back then, I, th- I don't think this, the, these sorts of issues were high on my personal radar. And if anything, I was probably on the more sceptical edge of the debate as the Times newspaper itself tended to be. It really took off in my life when I became Director General of the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, BBCA 2013, having worked at the organisation for two or four years before then in the communications and public affairs realm. And it really was just a process of observing how interest in this area moved from being fairly marginal, if if I'm going to be honest, in 2013, to pretty, pretty comprehensive by the time I stood down in late 2019. And I think in the after after further two years, um, it is now going to be the dominant theme for money for many people in the private equity space for the next decades to come. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I've just returned from Super Return in Berlin, and um, it was very much on the agenda there. Now, when we spoke with you last at our Sustainable Finance Week event in June, pretty much all of our panellists agreed that a successful COP needs engagement, not just from countries, but also from non-state actors, such as financial institutions. Tim, can you talk us through how the investment fund industry is responding to COP and those calls for net zero? Well, I think there's been, let's say, a transformation in attitudes over the past few years, and I'm I'm sure Super Return echoed that. Um, Well, just to give you one example, on the first day of COP, November the 1st, it was announced that a group of eight uh, institutions, private equity institutions, including the like of Intermediate Capital Group, HG Capital and Invest Industrial, well, forming a sort of collective called the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, NZAM. Uh, and that's a relatively small number of institutions. But together, they, the funds under management collectively constitute more than $57 trillion. 
And that's the rough equivalent of the combined GDPs of the United States, the European Union, China, Japan, and the UK. So that's the sort of scale we're discussing here. And that's also one of the reasons why this can't just be an area which governments deal with, because governments don't kind of control our lives to such an extent that, that, that their actions alone will make the difference between success and failure here. It really has to be a wholesale communal effort of which capital is absolutely vital. Did you say 57 trillion? I did, 57.4 trillion dollars. That's absolutely staggering. Um, yeah. Wow. So our panellists also called out for more consolidation around reporting standards. Um, we had the announcement on the finance specific day that the IFRSE International Financial Reporting Standards are creating a new International Sustainability Standards Board. Um, do you think that's what the finance industry was looking for when it was calling for consolidation? And um, do you think it will change how the finance industry views sustainability, Tim? Well, I think it will depend how quickly they can get it up and running and whether it is seen as a sort of comprehensive overview for the system or um, one of a number of different means of, 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 of measuring this thing, which in which case it would be far less useful. I think there, there is a bit of frustration out there about the, the absence of, a, of, if you like, of, of one, one guidebook. Um, and there's clearly the need and the role for that. It will make things easier because for a lot of institutions, you know, this, they, they, they don't have a long history in this space. They're having to learn quite quickly. Uh, and a degree of clarity and certainty will make that process much more efficient. I think you're absolutely right. So, and there's a huge need for innovation in the financial sector and also the need to regulate climate change. Um, how can we balance policymaking and the rise in the number of policies versus supporting market innovation? It's, it's not an easy balance and there's no sort of single solution, but I suspect what there's going to be is enormous amount of pressure from those who invest in areas such as private equity to see evidence of serious, serious commitment towards net zero uh, and over a measurable set of timetables, making, making some grand pronouncements about the year 2050 and not sort of checking in on progress the year 2049 isn't a runner. So I think we're going to have to, this can be, it's going to become part of almost the annual reporting process. And people will look at it with a great deal of intensity. And although uh, many private equity funds are not at the moment of the sort of size where, for example, the UK government is going to oblige them to report annually, I think we can anticipate that process coming. And it would be smarter to move in advance of it rather than have to wait for it to come along. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, now, when we last spoke, we were celebrating that this COP would be held under a Biden administration uh, as opposed to a Trump administration. What's your view, uh, Tim? Do you think that the US has shown leadership at this COP? And I'll also chuck in whether you think that the UK and EU have shown leadership. 
I think we, we should be broadly um, charitable in our assessment. I mean, clearly, if the, if, if the president had been, President Trump had been re-elected, it's very doubtful whether the, there would have been an American delegation of any particular weight there. Mm. So you have, you have to concede that point alone. And I also suspect that behind the scenes, John Kerry was, in fact, a very, very influential actor. Um, Joe Biden, perhaps more symbolically so. Uh, so I think the Americans did do heavy lifting. Um, I think the UK government, has a reasonable claim that this is on balance more of a success than not, and that uh, its own active role as chair of holding the presidency is consequential. I mean, there were difficult decisions, even on basic questions like whether or not it should go ahead at all as an in-person format, which I think on balance, although it obviously led to sort of eyebrows raised as private jets screeched in and out of Glasgow, I think it was more likely that you were gonna get some consensus in an in-person format fashion. So um, we've all taken a step forward. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not one of these people who believes in chucking rocks at things, but there are an awful lot more steps forward need to be taken to get to a world in which we think we can credibly claim by 2030 that we're en route to success by 2050. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about the private jets and, the, you know, the multiple vehicle motorcades going screeching through the streets of Glasgow as well. I didn't really see much in the way of electric vehicles there. Um, anyway, much in the news has been around the growth of green bonds. How important do you think they are in encouraging and financing sustainability projects? Oh, I think they will be absolutely critical. And I think those jurisdictions which moved early into this area, such as Guernsey, um, will see significant first mover advantage as a consequence of being pioneers. Um, I just I can't I can't see how we can credibly build a financial structure around this effort if green bonds are not absolutely at the heart of it. And I think the UK government recognizes that. Um, uh, and I think it's only a matter of time before other leading institutions sort of wake up and smell the coffee on that one as well. Mm, that's very nice of you to say that we're a pioneer in that space. Um, what should the relationship be between public and private capital when funding climate mitigation and adaption? Well, I think we have to accept that there needs to be a mixture of carrot and stick. Um, I mean, there, there needs to be strong incentives for investors to invest in institutions which themselves are interested in pushing the boundaries of technology and pushing the boundaries of social change in this space. Um, I'm a relative optimist about technology. I don't think you can just sort of assume that technology will solve all your problems. But if you create enough incentives to take on a particularly big challenge and mobilize resources, you can make considerable progress. I mean, to take a very different example, the fact that we were able to find not, not merely one, but an array of vaccines to COVID-19 within a year of it first emerging, when you know, historically um, it's often taken decades for vaccines to be developed, if at all, against um, you know, serious disease, shows what you can do if something is a big enough priority and people are willing to sort of bend normal rules in order to pursue that goal. And I think we probably need some of that mindset uh, over the next few years, because I say the great problem with um, having a long-term target is, is the temptation to sort of say, well, I don't need to do anything now, do I? 2050 is an awfully long way away. It is, is um, unacceptably high. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I couldn't agree more there. 
Now, going back to COP, Mark Carney said uh, that private, uh, sorry, said that firms that ignore the climate crisis will go bankrupt. Do you think that's a reasonable risk for the private equity industry? And uh, I'd also like you to tell me, Tim, what you think the key risks are to business. Well, I think I think as a broad statement, Mark Carney's in the right place. I mean, it's not the case that every single business that um, somehow doesn't behave properly or ignores this thing will automatically go under. But but I think the the broad argument that people uh, businesses such as private equity, which in the end require other people's money to come into them, have got to be behaving and acting in a manner which is enticing for those um, uh, institutions uh, and not off-putting because they have a choice. I mean, it's, it's not it's not the case that private equity is the only place that they can place their money or that an individual private fund is the only fund in which they can place their resource. So I, th I think the real risk here is in not being adept enough and agile enough to recognize that you know, net zero is not some sort of you know, vague slogan that it's sort of nice to slap on a brochure, that you're going to have to explain in every instance to your investors why a particular deal or a particular strategy for business that you have acquired is going to be consistent with those ambitions. And if you can't demonstrate that, then I think there's a sort of reputational pollution will be um, very considerable and potentially very, very damaging. And so I think people really have just got to accept that the, just, as, just as 10 years ago or so, ESG was started to move from being a kind of nice to have to, to becoming a must have because of investor pressure at a far greater pace the whole net zero concept, I think, is going to you know, be an accelerated version of that same process. That's really interesting. And I like what you said there about reputation pollution. That's a really great phrase. Um, thank you, Tim, for your time and insights today. Uh, I think it's been very illuminating to speak to you. And uh, one of the things I will take out of that as a headline about we've taken a step forwards, but many, many more need to be taken. I'd also like to thank you for tuning in to the podcast today. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. You can check those out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review or a comment. It's always great to get your feedback. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com and you can interact with us on Twitter at guernseygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. We've also got links to Tim Haynes' social media in our show notes, so please check those out to hear more from him. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. <laughs>